Our sermon text this morning is from the Gospel reading, the first chapter of John. We've heard it read. Let's now ask for the Lord's illumination on our time. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We also pray that you would send now the fullness of the gift of your spirit to open our minds, open our hearts, that we might understand the glorious truths you have to reveal to us. Feed our souls, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Staying on mission. How do we do that? John the Baptist was a man on mission. Every aspect, every detail of his life was devoted to one central, single mission. Bearing witness to the light of Christ. How did he do that? How did John manage to stay so faithfully, so consistently on mission? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see three primary sections of our text here. The first section tells us what John's mission was. Then second, we're going to see how John was tempted to deviate from the mission. And then third, we'll look at how John faithfully stayed on mission and what his secret to doing that was. So first, let's look. Hopefully now you've found it in your Bibles. We're in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. We're starting in verse 6. John chapter 1 Verse 6. Let's look at it together. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is the first man that is mentioned so far in the Gospel of John. Most of the other Gospels start out mentioning other men. Mark starts right out with Jesus Christ, the God-man. John is going to get to that. He's going to introduce Jesus as a man. But so far, in his Gospel, the first five verses, he's introduced Jesus as the Word who was eternally with God from the beginning and who was God. Then he says that, uh, that this word has life and light, and then there's a man sent from God whose name was John who's going to come as a witness to that light. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. The word sent here to describe John is the Greek word apostello. It's the word that we get our English word apostle from. It literally refers to one who is set apart. But the connotation is not just set apart and isolated, set apart to be sent on a special mission. The idea here is being sent out on a mission, not sent out in terms of get away from me and go find something to do. But I have a special purpose for you. This is what it is. I'm entrusting it to you and you only. Now go and remember that above all else, this is your mission. That is who John was. He was a man consumed by the mission of God for his life. Look at verse 7. What was John's mission? He came as a witness. What was he supposed to bear witness about? To bear witness about the light. Why was he bearing witness about the light? So that all might believe through him. Now, John has already referred to Jesus as the Word. And then in verse 14, he's finally going to say that this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But he hasn't gotten yet to Jesus the man. He's only gotten to John the man, who's the witness. To talk about whom? Well, Jesus, obviously. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the word. But why is John using these utter metaphors to talk about Jesus first in his gospel? The gospel of John opens with these words. Look up at verse 1. In the beginning. What other famous portion of scripture opens with in the beginning? Genesis, the creation account. 
what is the first creation activity of God on day one of creation week? God speaks forth his word and creates light. In the beginning, God spoke, let there be light. And then all the rest of creation flows out of that. When you see in the beginning was the word and the word is light, what are we supposed to think about? John is directing our attention right back to Genesis, the creation account. Why? Because that's first and foremost who Jesus is. That's John's ministry. To bear witness about what? Just a man who can do miracles? No. He's first and foremost to bear witness about the new creation that is coming through the Messiah. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is light, and John is a witness to bear witness to this new light coming into the world to make all things new. Jesus is the beginning of God's new creations of a new heaven and a new earth, and John is the forerunner to announce that the time has come. We'll see why this is not a brand new expectation as we proceed through the passage. The Jews knew, the faithful Jews should have known, based on the Old Testament, that when Messiah comes... He is going to make all things new. He is going to be ushering in a new creation. This is what John, the writer, the Apostle John, is setting up his readers to first and foremost understand that Jesus is. And this is what John the Baptist is sent to proclaim. Not simply that the, there's a man coming that you should listen to, but there's a new creation and it's about to happen and God is about to get started because here is the light entering the world. The world. The Word of God, the eternal Word of God, by whom all things were created the first time and through whom everything is about to be remade. Verse 8. We get a clarification here, lest we get attached too much importance to John the Baptist. He was not the light. Instead, John came to bear witness about the light. Why is this clarification important? We all know this. The one who comes to bear witness about someone else is not the someone else. Why is this emphasized in the text? Well, it's emphasized here to clearly establish for us exactly what John's mission is and who he is and who he is not, because the rest of our text is going to uh, betray some confusion by the religious leaders as to who John is and what he's really trying to say. Uh, now, John was not simply sent to bear witness of the light as sort of a random assignment where God said, you know what? it would kind of be nice before I send Jesus to just have somebody going in front of him to just get things ready. So how about we just come up with John? That's a great idea. Now, the role of John was more uh, foundational than that. The role of John here summed up the entire purpose and mission of Old Covenant Israel in himself. The entire purpose of God's covenant people in the Old Covenant, ever since he called Abraham out and established him as a special people, was to bear witness to the light that Yahweh had entrusted to Israel so that the rest of the world would see it as a beacon and come to it. God told Abraham, remember? Abraham, come out. I'm going to give you my special light so that nobody else can see it. No, God said, Abraham, I'm making you a special people so that through you I will bring blessing to all the nations of the world. Moses told the Israelites, I'm giving you this law so that all the other nations will see the light of these testimonies and say, now there is true wisdom and true righteousness. We need to go and we need to learn about this Yahweh and about his righteous laws because that's where it's at. 
The whole purpose of the prophets was to prophesy a time when Israel would once again be faithful to her role to bear witness to the light of Yahweh so that the nations, instead of blaspheming, would come to submit and worship the one true God. John's mission is the mission of Israel. And even though Israel consistently flubbed the mission, John is going to get it right. The Holy Spirit is with John from birth. John is going to give the people, finally, a model in himself of what Old Testament Israel was supposed to be doing all along. So now that we've seen what the mission of John was, let's jump to the second section of our text to see how John is tempted to co-opt this mission for his own glory. Jump down, our scripture reading jumps to verse 19. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I'm not the Christ. There again, we see this emphasis on the idea of John having to confess, not deny, but confess. Why is there this emphasis in the text on what John is saying as his answer? Well, it's because the implication is, the Jews in Jerusalem are wondering if John actually might claim to be the Messiah. Is this guy out in the wilderness, does he really think he's the Messiah? If so, how are we going to deal with that? Well, maybe as a backup plan, maybe he's not actually Messiah, but maybe he's some other really important person that we're expecting to show up. Elijah, or the prophet. We'll get to those in just a minute. But the text here goes out of its way to emphasize that John has to admit John has to let everyone's expectations down. John has to confess. He has to not deny, but instead he has to confess. No, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not going to claim who you think I'm going to claim. I'm not the Messiah. That's not who I am. And they ask him, well, verse 21. Okay, next up on our chart of important figures that we're expecting to come, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Well, then, third, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. The implication here is that John's listeners are ready to afford him credibility if he'll just go ahead and claim somebody. He seems to be an important person. Maybe he is. The temptation here for John is to seize and take hold of the glory that's being offered to him by the religious leaders of his day. The crowds were ready to acclaim him as the Messiah or some great person. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were obviously ready and offering to do the same if John would just take it. But what would he have to do in order to do that? He would have to confess a lie. He would have to compromise his entire mission. Who else soon in the Gospels is going to be tempted with all the glory that the world has to offer if he'll just compromise his mission? That's exactly the temptation that comes to Jesus later. Jesus will pass that temptation. He will resist with flying colors. How does Jesus resist the temptation in the wilderness, just like John is resisting the same temptation for false glory in the wilderness? Well, Jesus resists by quoting Scripture. What does John do? John is going to fulfill his mission by quoting Scripture as well. We'll see that in just a moment. I want to uh, spend a couple more seconds here thinking about verse 21. Are you Elijah? John says, no. Now, what do we know about the angel who came to Zechariah and Elizabeth and announced the birth of John? 
The angel said that John is going to be born to fulfill the prophecy, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. John was raised with the expectation that he was the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, which says God is going to send the spirit of Elijah. Furthermore, we see Jesus later on in the Gospels in Matthew 11. He tells the crowds, John is the fulfillment of that prophecy that God was going to send Elijah before I showed up. So do we think John is just ignorant of his calling? He doesn't know who he is? Or is he just straight up lying to the Pharisees? Well, what's going on here is more likely the Pharisees have a misconception of this prophecy about Elijah. They're not looking for someone filled with the spirit of Elijah. They're not looking for the next man of God to pick up the mantle of Elijah and run with it. Perhaps they remember that Elijah didn't technically die on planet earth. He was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And for all the Pharisees know, maybe God is just preserving him with some kind of anti-aging heavenly water, and he's going to plop him right back down on earth, Elijah come in the flesh again to pick up and keep going. And John says, I'm not actually Elijah. If that's who you're asking me I am, I'm not going to take the time to explain to you that your interpretation of the Old Testament is messed up. I'm simply going to say, I'm not who you are asking. I'm not who you are claiming me to be. He does the same thing with the, uh, the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, Behold, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me. Listen to him, because he will be a greater prophet than I. So then the Jews have this expectation, when is the prophet coming? Well, we know on the other side of Jesus' ministry that the prophet that Moses prophesied about was the Messiah. But does John correct their exegesis here either? He says, no, you, you already asked me if I was the Christ, the Messiah. I said, no, now you're asking if I'm the prophet from Deuteronomy. Don't you know that's the same guy? John doesn't do that. He's not in the business of correcting the Pharisees' misinterpretations of these Old Testament prophecies. He simply says, you think that's who I am, that's not who I am. John is, is resisting the temptation for the glory that the worldlings have to offer him if he'll just compromise his mission. There was another man in history who did similarly. A military commander of a rebel army had just defeated the mightiest military empire in the world. With a loyal army at his back, a victorious army at his back, and a populace uh, who was completely in love with this commander who had given them their freedom, he easily could have marched on the capital, taken control, and ruled as the next dictator. No problem. But George Washington didn't take the bait. He did not want that power and that glory for himself because his mission was not about himself. His mission was to give a new creation, a new republic to the world, the light of which they had never seen before. And then George Washington was content to step back, retire, and let the new creation go off into a glory of its own. That was his mission. He stayed on mission. He refused the temptation to seize false glory for himself. That's what John is doing here. John is not seeking his own glory from the crowds. He's willing to deny all the glory they have to offer in order to bear witness faithfully to the Christ, the light of the world, and to stay on mission. So let's look at the third section of our text here now, starting in verse 22. How does John actually fulfill his mission? So they said to him, who are you? We're out of guesses. Three strikes, we're out, now you're on. Just tell us. Who are you, John? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
So John says, well, thank you very much. Let me explain. Well, you see, I was miraculously born after an angel came and appeared to my parents, and then he was dumbfounded. My dad couldn't speak until I was born, and I have this special name that's set apart. Here's who I am. Here's how I've trained these last 30 years. Thank you for asking. Let me give you my credentials. John doesn't do that. John takes a question about himself and turns that into an opportunity to stay on mission and instead speak about Christ. How does he do that? John says, verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is interesting. The Pharisees come and they ask him a point-blank question, and instead of giving them a simple answer, John answers with Scripture. He says, well, here's what Isaiah said. You figure it out. Who else is going to do that all through the rest of the Gospels? John is dealing with the Pharisees the same way Jesus is going to deal with the Pharisees. Who are you, Jesus? What's this all about? Well, I'm the fulfillment of what Isaiah said. Go learn this, right? Here's what Hosea said. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is constantly refusing to play the Pharisees' game and simply telling them to go search the scriptures because that's where they'll find all the answers. That's what John is doing. John says, if you really want to know who I am, I'm the one that Isaiah said was going to come and cry in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. Now, what's the deeper significance of why Isaiah chooses that passage? Why John chooses that passage? There are other prophecies that John could have pointed to and said, this is the fulfillment of who I am. But Isaiah 40 is no accident that John chooses it. To step back, the whole book of Isaiah is organized into two main sections of prophecy. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 35, is about God dealing with Israel and then with all the nations surrounding. Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, Moab, Ammon, etc. Then we get historical narrative. Chapter 40 of Isaiah is the opening lines of the second half of the book. Act 2. The entire second half of Isaiah is a prophecy, an unveiling of who the Messiah is going to be when he finally gets here and what he's going to accomplish. He's going to be a suffering servant to atone for the sin of his people, and he's going to raise the light of Israel so high that all the nations will see and come to it and will worship the one true God. That is what Isaiah 40 through 66 is all about. And John says, if you want to know who I am, I'm the guy that kicks this party off. I'm the guy who is pulling the trigger on everything that Isaiah talked about in the second half of his book. It's about to happen. I'm the one sent to prepare for it. Let me quote you the opening lines, and you fill in the rest. What do you think's about to happen? Exactly what faithful, believing Jews would have understood as the Messiah's coming. This is really happening. But exactly the type of answer that would have frustrated the hard-hearted Pharisees who say, why won't this guy just simply give us a straight answer? Why is he quoting the prophet? We know what the prophecies are. We just want to know who you are, John. John doesn't play that game. Verse uh, 24, we have this parenthetical comment. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Cue the Darth Vader theme. Now we know these guys are really bad guys. John didn't introduce them as Pharisees, right? said certain uh, individuals who had been sent uh, from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, from the, the priests and the scribes. Now in verse 24, after they've already tempted John and he's resisted the temptation, they're fully exposed. They're actually sent from the Pharisees. By the time the gospel of John is written, the other three gospels are extant. The readers of the gospel of John know exactly who the Pharisees are and that they're the bad guys in the story. 
So John says, well, here are these religious leaders coming to tempt John the Baptist. He resists, and now John tells us, and by the way, they were sent by the Pharisees. That word for sent here in verse 24, apostello, same exact word in verse 6. The contrast here, John is sent. His mission is defined by Yahweh. But the people who come from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they don't have a mission from Yahweh. They have a man-made mission. They're on a mission for human glory. Verse 25, we see how John continues to stay on mission. The next question that is naturally provoked in his hearers' minds is, well, wait a minute, if you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet, then why are you the one baptizing? The implication here is interesting. They don't say, John, what is this thing you're doing with water? This is new to us. We've never heard of this. What do you call it? Baptizing? What is that? What does it mean? Where did you come up with that? Was that your own idea? Did you read it somewhere? All the religious leaders from Jerusalem expect that if this guy is the Messiah, of course he's going to be baptizing people. If this guy is really Elijah or the prophet, of course he's going to come baptizing. And then they're confused. After he says, well, I'm not any of those famous figures that you're expecting, then they say, well, then why are you baptizing? What's your authority to be baptizing if you're not the Messiah? This tells us a couple of things. One is that baptism is not new to the old covenant believers' mindset. They expected the Messiah to come baptizing. Perhaps it was because of passages in Isaiah that says that when Messiah comes, he's going to sprinkle all of the nations and draw them to himself. Perhaps it was passages like Ezekiel that say, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and I will give you a new heart to walk in my ways when I establish the new covenant. But Hebrews 9 tells us that even all of the washing ceremonies of the old covenant Levitical system, they were baptisms. Every single time that a priest would wash or anoint anything with oil, blood, or water, it was regarded as a baptism. The Old Covenant itself was full of baptism rituals. And the Jews are expecting Jesus when he shows up, the Messiah when he shows up, to come with the true baptism, the big baptism that's really going to atone for all of our sins. It's really going to cleanse us. Instead of all these little cleansing rituals that are simply pointing us forward, the Messiah is going to bring the true cleansing. So they expected the Messiah to baptize, and when John said, I'm not the Messiah, they said, well, then why are you baptizing? John answered them, verse 26, well, yes, I baptize with water, but let's not talk about baptism right now. Instead, I want to go back to my mission. I want to tell you about this guy that I'm sent to bear witness about. Let me tell you about the light. Among you right now is standing one who you don't know, but he's the one who comes after me. I said I was the forerunner of Isaiah 40. The one who comes after me is the Messiah. He's standing among you right now, and let me tell you this about this Messiah figure. He's not just a little bit better than I am. I am not worthy to untie his shoelaces. That must have come as a shock to his listeners. The religious leaders from Jerusalem are going out to this man because he's so respected, so venerated. In fact, they think he might even be the Messiah. John's parents in Luke chapter 1, Zachariah and Elizabeth, were described as blameless under the law. Everyone knew that they were some of the most righteous, holy people around. They raised John as a Nazarite set apart from the womb for a special mission for Yahweh. John has devoted his entire life to holiness. Then he's out in the wilderness, secluded. And what is he preaching about? Repent of all your sins. And he's naming everybody's sins who comes to him. Look at Luke chapter 3. 
He's naming all the sins. This is one of the most holy and righteous men of his day. He is probably regarded by the high and the low as one of the best examples of a blameless, righteous, holy man under the old covenant. And they go with respect out to this holy of holy man, and they say, what are you doing? And John says, well, you may want to know more about me, but let me tell you, right now, the Messiah is standing among you, and he's so holy, I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off. That had to mess with their minds, as they wonder, well, who could be that much holier than John? Well, they're about to find out. Jesus is about to be revealed. But look at verse 28. Verse 28 is not in here by accident. You heard it last week, Pastor Craw explaining, geography matters. Geographical details are given to us, not because they're just part of the setting, but because they're part of the narrative. They're part of the story. Our last verse from the text shows us that even John's choice of geographical location was on mission. Everything about what John was doing and saying was constantly on mission. Look at verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John, again, is not in Judea, but he has removed himself from the land that was promised to Abraham. He's removed himself, geographically speaking, from the promise of Abraham. And he's put himself just outside, outside the Jordan River, in the wilderness. And he's calling all of Israel, you're not worthy to be in there either. You're not worthy to be in Judea. You think you're the heirs of Abraham, but you're not worthy to inherit the promise given to Abraham. You need to come back out into the wilderness. We need to have another exodus. We need to have another wilderness meeting with God. You need to confess your sins. You need to repent of your uncleanness. You need to acknowledge your unworthiness before God. You need to be baptized yet again. You need more cleansing from the priest. You need to be washed yet again and purified. Then, what does John do with his listeners? Once they've come and admitted their guilt and received the washing that symbolizes cleansing and purification from this priest in the wilderness... Then what do they do? John sends them back in. John says, now you can go back to Judea. Now you can go back to the land promised to Abraham. Now you're worthy. John is preaching his message, not just with his words, but even with his actions, with his stage and his props. Everything that John does is carefully calculated to tie into his mission, even down to his geographical placement. So what are the applications here? What lessons do we learn from John staying on mission? Two lessons this morning from John's mission and his faithfulness. One is, the mission is comprehensive. Every time John had an opportunity to speak, he bore witness to the Messiah. Even his details of what he wore and what he ate, as you heard last week, of where he chose to plant himself and preach, as the text here draws attention to, Every detail of his life was devoted solely to one thing and one thing only, and that is how can I faithfully, consistently, and boldly bear witness to the light of Jesus Christ? Kind of like an astronaut today. Every detail of their life, every detail of their waking minute, even arguably their sleeping moments, are all programmed. They're all logged, monitored, measured planned, designed, 
to achieve the maximum result. If any little detail goes off mission, everybody dies and nobody makes it home. That's how carefully in tune that every aspect of the life of an astronaut has to be on mission or else they're going to fail. That's the life of John the Baptist. That's the life that God calls his people to. No area of life is off mission. Every single thing that we do, say, and speak is called to be consumed and taken up with the mission that God has given to his people to bear witness to the light that has entered the world to establish the new creation among mankind. So what does that mean? Well, many of you here are married. What does being on mission in your marriage look like? Is every single word that comes out of your mouth to your spouse shaped by God's mission for marriage? Husbands, is every word that you say to your wife shaped by a desire to be on mission to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Or do you sometimes say words that are motivated by your own personal glory? Wives, is every way that you speak to and about your husband when he's not around is it shaped by God's mission for your marriage to show the watching world what it means to honor and submit to and respect the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you on mission in every detail of your life? Or do you think it's enough to be on mission simply in the big ones? Uh, kids, of course, you're on mission too, just like John the Baptist was from the womb. John knew what his purpose in life was, and everything that he did was to prepare for that. Kids, how do you do your schoolwork? How do you talk to your parents? And how do you talk to your brothers and sisters? Would someone watching the way you live your life say, now that's a kind of light that I've never seen before? Or would they simply say, that kid's trying to pursue his own glory? Your mission, too, is to show that you are consumed with a desire to show forth the life of of Christ in everything that you say and do. The second lesson, so the first one is the comprehensiveness of the mission. The second is how. With the bar set that high, with a mission that is that demanding and that comprehensive, how on earth are we going to fulfill that kind of a mission in our lives? Well, again, John gives us the example. I'll flip over a page if you have your Bible open to John chapter 3. Look at verse 26. We won't read it for sake of time. But the crowd comes to John and says, Rabbi, all these crowds that were coming and flocking to you to hear you preach, they've now abandoned you. They're going to listen to this new guy called Jesus, the one that you bore witness about. You just put yourself out of business. You're now a fading celebrity. Nobody cares about you anymore. What's your reaction to that, John? And we expect John to say something like, you know, I've really wrestled with this, but I've finally come to peace with this. I'm not angry. I'm not bitter. It's okay. I can let it go. Instead, what is John's answer? I couldn't be more excited. This is my dream come true. And his listeners are scratching their heads going, wait, we just told you that your ministry is now tanked, your history, everybody's going after Jesus. And John said, I know. I couldn't be any happier. Can you believe it? Everything is going just perfectly. John's secret for staying on mission was where he had put his joy. If you ask John, what will make you happier than anything in the world, he wouldn't tell you about anything coming true in his own life. 
well, I wish this, I wish that, I wish the other thing. He would tell you, I just want to see all men flocking to the light of the Messiah. And if I can see it with my eyes, my joy, verse 29, is complete. There's nothing else I need that would make me any happier in life. He must increase, but I must decrease. Is there anything that would make you happier, more joyful, than seeing lost people come into this church, learn about the gospel, believe it, and then to see the believers diving into the scripture, growing in their faith, growing in maturity, to see the church bringing the light of the new creation to transform all of culture, all of civilization around us, anything that will warm your heart and make you happier than that, then drop it. Because otherwise you will compromise the mission. But if that is the joy and rejoicing of your heart, if God gives us, church, the desire to say more than anything coming true in my life, in my marriage, in my family, in my job, in my career, in my neighborhood, more than anything, I know what would make me the happiest man and woman on earth is if I can see people coming to the gospel, transforming their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then taking that out and bringing the light of the new creation to transform everything around them. If I can just see that, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. God will take care of that. My joy is complete. If that is the cry of our hearts, then, church, we are on mission. We will resist temptation when it comes. You will stand firm in the day of trial. This is the mission of the church. Let everything in your life bear faithful witness to Jesus in the light of his new creation. And you do this by placing your deepest joy in the success of the kingdom of God and nothing else. There is no greater joy for us. That is how John stayed on mission, and that is how we, as the body of Christ, will stay on mission until Jesus returns in his second advent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John the Baptist. We thank you for the example that he is to us of how we can keep our hearts focused on your kingdom, bear faithful witness to you, whether we have success, whether we don't have success, we can keep the joy of our heart focused on your kingdom and the spread of your gospel through the world. Delight our hearts with your gospel this morning and make us faithful witnesses to the light of Christ all around us. In Jesus' name, amen.